Good evening, my dear brothers and sisters. Please do be seated. This evening, we're going to finish our series through the epistle of 2 Peter. Um, we're now in 2 Peter chapter 3. So it would be very helpful if you could open your Bibles again to that epistle reading, 2 Peter chapter 3. It's on page 1215 of your pew Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 3 on page 1215. And in the very center of your bulletin, you'll find an, find an outline that you may find helpful for writing notes and the like. Let's start with a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were speaking to us by your Spirit as your word was read to us. And we pray you'll continue to do so now. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Come on, is it really such a big and terrible sin? Doesn't everyone do it? It's not like it hurts anyone, is it? No one will even know. Can't we just go and be forgiven later? Have you ever found yourself thinking or even perhaps saying that kind of thing? My dear brothers and sisters, how very fast we lose sight of the fact that Jesus may at any moment return from heaven how easy it is to softly and slowly even start to think and act like he's not coming back at all, as if this world is all there is, as if the day of judgment would never come. Am I right? Well, this danger is actually nothing new. One of the main reasons that Peter wrote this letter is in order to warn his readers against that danger. And he does so first of all, by reminding them to look back to both the Old Testament prophets and the words of the apostles. As he says, 2 Peter chapter 3, this is verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, do you notice that the two things they are to look at for certainty are actually the two things that we look at for certainty? They were, first of all, to go back to the Old Testament prophets, the same prophets that we read in the Old Testament. Prophets who, in many, many, many places, speak of the coming day of the Lord. Prophets like Joel and Daniel and Amos and Zechariah and Zephaniah and Micah and Hosea and, and Isaiah, which we heard read earlier today, and many more. His point is, if you know what the Old Testament prophets say, then you know that the day of the Lord will come. And that's not the only certainty, for they also have the apostolic word. They have the word which came by the apostles with Christ's own authority, which also promises his return, and which apostolic word 
we too have, as it speaks to us from the New Testament. There we hear the Apostle John speaking of how Christ promised, I will come again and take you to myself. Behold, I am coming soon and bringing my recompense with me. Here we hear the Apostle Matthew tell us, The Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. And the Apostle Paul, who says that Christ will come as a thief in the night, with the trumpets of heaven, with a cry of command. And the Apostle Peter has already in this very letter spoken to tell us of the power and the coming of the Lord. Both prophets and apostles, both Old Testament and New Testament together point certainly and surely to the fact that the day of the Lord will come. Christ is to return. So do what Peter says. Remember that and stir up your hearts in expectation of his coming again. However, although we can indeed be absolutely certain that he will return, there will be others, scoffers, who will try to make fun of our hope. Peter had to warn his readers about them, and it's still a problem today. As he says in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Why do the scoffers want to try to deny the return of Christ? Is it because of evidence or reasoning or logic? Well, actually, no, quite the contrary. They want to deny the return of Christ because they want to live as if it will never happen. As Peter said, they are following their own sinful desires. Sinful desires which mean that they've deceived themselves, kidded themselves that that they will never face judgment for their sin, that they can keep on sinning and never face a consequence. And let me tell you, they will try to deceive us as well. Verse 4, they'll say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Have you ever heard an argument like that? It's kind of like the scientist who camps out at a, at a graveyard, at a, at a cemetery, for an entire year and monitors all the graves and, at the end of the year, writes a conclusive report saying, I conclude it is not possible for the dead to rise. It's not happened at all. But conveniently forgets the fact that God has already raised his son from the dead, showing that the dead not only can, but will rise. The claim the scoffers are making here is very similar. They're claiming that, well, all the way since forever, there's never been a day of judgment. Why are you thinking that one is going to come? Just face it, the day of judgment is not going to come. Stop trying to live righteous, holy lives, waiting for a day that's not going to come. But they're conveniently forgetting the fact that actually God has already brought one day of judgment long ago. With Noah and the flood, as he says in verse 5, they deliberately ignore this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. 
If God judged the world at the time of Noah, can God judge the world? Of course he can. And not only that, as Peter also points out, God had made the world by his word. God had judged the world by his word and by his same word. He has consigned this present world to the day of judgment. As he says in verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If his word could create and judge in the past, can it not judge and create in the future? Well, of course it can. The scoffers, the scoffers have no objection. Their argument holds no weight. So do not be deceived by the scoffers, but stand firm, stirring up your hearts for the day of Christ's return. However, I will admit this. I will admit that sometimes when the scoffers scoff, although they have no basis to do so, the very fact that we've been waiting so very, very long for Christ's return sometimes seems to strengthen their argument, doesn't it? We've been waiting so long, perhaps, perhaps we should think again. Is he really coming back? But let me tell you this. Once you know why he has delayed so long, his delaying will strengthen rather than threaten your faith in his return. Why is it he has not yet come back? When well, short Christ has not yet come back, because when he does, it will be the day of judgment and there will be no more time for the ungodly to repent. The time which is now between Christ's ascension and his return is a time when the gospel has been going out into all the world, where sinners have been hearing of Christ's death for the forgiveness of their sins, where the Spirit has been drawing people of every nation and tribe and people and tongue to himself, bringing them repentance, the forgiveness of their sins and life in Jesus' name. Think of it like this, my brothers and sisters. Imagine if you would a terrible shipwreck out at sea, men and women, children, fighting, struggling to keep their heads above the water, and then the lifeboat arrives. There are brave lifeboatmen straining into the wind and the waves, hauling people out of the water and into the safety of their boat. And these that they save, are they not longing to be brought back to the shore where they might find some hot soup, some dry clothes, the good rest of a, of a warm bed after that terrible ordeal? But let me tell you this, that lifeboat is not coming back anytime soon. Those lifeboat men will stay out until they have rescued everyone they can. They desire all to be saved. And it breaks their heart if even one drowns that day. But let me tell you, the day will come when that lifeboat will return and bring the promised comfort and rest to those who have so patiently awaited it. And it is very much like that with our Lord. As Peter says in this very epistle, our Lord does not wish any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he is delaying patiently for our sake. Let me tell you this too, that because he is God, he is able to be a lot more patient 
than we can really even understand. For as God, for him to wait a thousand years as if he, as, as if he waits but one day. To us, him delaying almost 2,000 years and counting to return, it, it seems like it's been forever, but, but to God it's like waiting between now and Tuesday. Is Christ delaying his return? Does he seem slow to fulfill his promise? Well, if so, praise the Lord all the more, because that means he is busy about his work of seeking and saving the lost. And let me remind you of this too, that if you today know that you trust in Christ, that means you too. You and I, who in his mercy, in these latter days, he too has saved from sin and brought forgiveness and the promise of life. As the Spirit says by Peter in verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What a wonderful God we have. Well, having now reminded us of how certain we can be that he will return, Peter is going to go on and remind us about what that return will mean. And first of all, verse 10, he tells us that when the day of the Lord comes, it will come like a thief that is suddenly and unexpectedly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed it is as if we would say that, that the heavens themselves are shielding, somehow hiding the fullness of the evil that happens on earth from the face of the Lord. But on the day of the Lord, the heavens are first destroyed and, and suddenly everything on earth is exposed. For no deed, no sin, no secret can remain hidden on the day that the Lord comes to judge the living and the dead. And that means that as people who know this and expect that day, actually our lives are going to be becoming very different from those scoffers who have deceived themselves into thinking that day won't come, won't they? Unlike scoffers who are running after their evil desires, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, we, we who wait for that day are to live lives of holiness and godliness, longing for us to be revealed on the day of the Lord. In fact, Peter says that doing so even hastens the day. And if the reason for Christ's delay is that he wants all to repent, then it makes sense that repenting and turning to godliness only will lead to Christ coming faster. Verse 11, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord. Let me tell you, this distinction between our lives and uh, the lives of the scoffers actually is not just for the present. It's also a distinction that continues to the future. The scoffers have deluded themselves that death just means the grave and worms and nothing else, and, and for them is reserved the eternal destruction of the ungodly. 
But we, we who trust in Christ, verse 13, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That is God's big plan. If you are looking around you day by day and you see a world that is marred by sin and greed and evil and you wish it would end, if you see a world that is full, fallen far from the very good creation and wish somehow it might be made right, then rejoice because that is what God has promised. He will create all things new once more, a new heavens and a new earth and there only righteousness and not evil will dwell forever. Rejoice and stir yourselves up for that day. Well, having set out what we're to expect on the day, Peter finally arrives at his conclusions to the whole of his letter. Let's see what he says. The first conclusion is to remind us that if that indeed is the hope for which we are waiting, then our lives will be lives living lived in preparation for that hope. We are to be like that pleasing sacrifice which, which God will be delighted to receive, the sacrifice without spot or blemish, at peace. Does he mean that we have to be perfect in order to be saved? No, but he does mean that we have been saved in order to be perfect. Because we know that Peter exhorts us, live spotless, pleasing lives now as you wait for a creation where righteousness and not evil dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. His second conclusion is to remind us of what we saw earlier, the right way to understand the delay in Christ's return. That it does not show that Christ is not coming, but on the contrary, it shows he is busy saving people for the day he does come. Verse 15, he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Here he digresses a little bit because he wants to talk to us about Paul, who had also written as an apostle to them. Verse 15, he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. And he warns them, be very careful of people who might twist Paul's words. For he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Do you notice that St. Peter here classes St. Paul's writings as scripture, as amongst the other scriptures. It's very helpful for us today in particular, because there are today, even in the church, people who, who try to ignore some parts of the writings of St. Paul, or, or feel they have the freedom to, to twist the meaning of what the apostle has written into another meaning that might suit their purposes better, especially the the things that he writes concerning sexuality and the proper roles of men and women within the church. But seeing that St. Peter says that Paul's words are scripture, just like the rest of scripture, 
that ignoring and twisting those words is not an option at all. Well, having finished his digression about Paul, Peter comes back to his next conclusion. And his third conclusion, verse 17, is that we should therefore take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. How could we be carried away with the error of lawless people? Well, there's always a danger, isn't there? As, as co- the culture around us starts to do and teach new things, to follow them, even if they are contrary to what is written in God's word. It's always a danger, isn't it? In our culture today, it is now very common for godless couples to to live together in sin, unmarried. And sadly, even some Christians have been carried away by their lawless error. They have lost their stability and, and ended up mired in sexual immorality. Dear brothers and sisters, heed what St. Peter writes to us and take care, not only to avoid the sexual immorality of our culture, but to avoid every error of the lawless people. Because, do you see, we are not meant to be becoming more and more like them. We are meant to be becoming more and more like Christ. We are to be growing, verse 18, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we are waiting for his coming and and the blessing of the new creation, our lives are to be becoming brighter and cleaner and holier and more and more filled with goodness and godliness. Our hearts are to learn to love righteousness, our hands to be trained to do good and our minds transformed through the knowledge of Christ as we labor always and everywhere to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let me close by reminding you of the words that we heard from our gospel reading, the words of Christ himself who says, Blessed is that servant whom the master finds awake when he comes. You also, he says, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you sent your Son in love, that he might come and bear our sins upon the cross and win for us eternal salvation. We give you thanks that you have sent this gospel out into all the world, that sinners are being called and turning, repenting, being forgiven, and being given a place in your eternal kingdom. We pray, Father. We pray, Father, even as we await the day when your Son will return from heaven to bring us to that kingdom, we pray that you would stir us up to be ready. Pray that you would teach us more and more to live 
holy and righteous and godly lives, lives that glorify you, lives that will please you on the day of his return from heaven. Pray, Father, that you would prosper the the gospel of salvation throughout all the world in, in these last days before he returns, that many more would indeed come to repentance and find salvation in him. Pray, Father, that when he does return, he will indeed find each and every one of us spotless and without blemish on the day of his coming. We pray this in his name. Amen.